Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, good morning, Wildwood. Hey, it's great to see you all today. And uh, glad that we have a chance to, to look into God's Word together. If you've been around Wildwood the last few weeks, you know that we are in the midst of a series based out of the book of Romans, chapters 9 through 11, a series that we've called Family Tree. And really, this series is about the security that we have in our relationship with Christ. In Romans chapter 8, this amazing statement is made that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. And when that amazing statement comes to us, we might wonder, can God be counted on to deliver on that promise? And one of the ways that God verifies that he can be trusted with a promise like that is by showing us how he has dealt with those he has given promises to in the past. In a sense, we can look at different branches on God's spiritual family tree, and as we look at how he dealt with those in one branch, we can have confidence in how he'll deal with us a different branch. And so by looking at God's faithfulness to the nation of Israel and to people of Jewish descent based on the promises he gave them in the Old Testament, so we can have confidence about God's faithfulness to us today as well. And that's what we're seeing in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Now, we began that series a couple of weeks ago. Today, we're in part three of this series, looking at Romans chapter 9, verses 30 through chapter 10, verse 4. But before we look at those verses together today, I want to just begin by, by asking you a question. And that question is this. It's a genuine question. I want you to actually answer this in your heart, in your head. I want you to answer this question. And that question is this. How long of a race are you willing to run? In other words, if I were to set a race at a distance, at what distance will you go ahead and run it, or at what distance will you back out and say, no thanks? For some of you, you might be willing to run a race to the end of the block. Anything further than that, no way. To the end of the block, sure, I'll run to there. For others of you, it might be a little further. You might say, you know, I'd be willing, willing to, to race a 400, one lap around a track, but that would be about the extent of where I would want to run. For others of you, you're like, no, 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 I'll go an 800. I'll go two laps around the track. Still others, a mile, maybe more 5K or a 10K. Still, for some of you crazies out there, you would go all the way to a half marathon and still for others all the way to a marathon. But here's the reality. At some point along that way, I probably lost most of you. But believe me, there are some of you in this room that are crazier than that. And I could say, how many of you would do a 100-mile race? And the, que the answer would be, well, how long do I get? I could run a marathon a weekend for a month, and I could get to 100 miles. How about 200? How about three, 400, 500, 1,000 miles, 2,000 miles? At some point in that progression, certainly I have lost all of you at this point. I've hit a distance that none of you would want to race. But let me just say for a moment, let's just imagine that it's a race not of 5 or 10 or, or 50 miles or 100 miles or even 1,000 miles, but it's a race around the entire globe. We're going to start from our parking lot. We're going to end in our parking lot, but you're going to have to run east 
until you approach us from the west. How many of you would sign up for that kind of a race? That's a pretty far distance. Well, I say that. You know, there's some of you that are like, okay, if that's the challenge, it's on. You get your shoes out and you lace them up and you get your dry fit clothing and you're ready for that race. So others of you are thinking, I'm not even going to start because I don't think I can get there. But we all have to go to the starting line. So we all go out to begin this race and we notice that, that right there at the starting line, Right in the way of the race is a giant 777 airplane with a, a sign outside and a skilled pilot inside that says, free pass to the finish line. Now, some of you would see that and you would take it immediately. Still others would go, you know what? That plane is a cop-out. That plane is for the weak. That plane is not for me. And you would run around that plane and you would take off. But guess what you find at mile marker one? Same plane sitting there. Some of you get on it after one mile. Others of you keep going. You run around it. The plane's there again at mile two, three. And every mile in front, you see this plane. Well, some of you have take, gotten on at some point. Others of you are beginning to see this plane as a nuisance. This plane is in your way. You're having to run extra distance to go around it. It is an obstacle to your progress, not the means to your progress. Because if you are to compete in the race, you want to win and you want to win in your own power. See, I tell you that story today, not because we're actually going to run that race, but because in our spiritual lives, Salvation is sometimes thought of as a race. And the race towards our salvation, this race that, that has this prize of eternal life, of fellowship with God forever, this, this race of our salvation is a race that is of great distance. It's not just a few miles that we think we can get to, but it's a race all the way to eternity. It's a race in pursuit of a holy God. And, and many of us in this room realized at some point in our lives that we would never get there in our own strength, and we have taken advantage of trusting Jesus, who is the pilot, the way to get us there. But others are still in this race in our own power, and we are getting frustrated that we're having to continually run around these Christians who continue to say that there's only one way to the end, and that is found in something larger than ourselves. See, the reality is many have rejected Christ because they feel like they need to get and earn their salvation in their own strength and in their own power. But the Bible is clear that there is only one way that we might be saved. And that way is found by placing our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ. And what we, we see in the book of Romans, beginning in chapter 30 through chapter 10 and verse 4, is we, we see God revealing to us that salvation is found through him and not through us. And we're going to look at that today, and in these verses, I think we'll find encouragement, both for those who are here checking out Christianity, maybe for the first time, as well as for those of us who have been a part of a church our entire lives. So let's look at some things about our salvation from the book of Romans chapter 9 and verse 30 through chapter 10 and verse 4. The apostle Paul writes, and this is what he says, 
He says, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, in these few verses today, we're going to see a couple of things about our salvation. The first thing we see about our salvation is this. Salvation is about trust, not try. Salvation is about trust, not try. We see this in chapter 9, verses 30 through 33. Now, before we look at those verses, it's helpful for us to catch the context of all of Romans chapter 9. Because what we see in Romans chapter 9 is that the Apostle Paul is talking about God's faithfulness to the nation of Israel, a faithfulness to his promises. The first few verses of chapter 9, we are reminded that though God has made promises to Israel, not all Israel is saved. Paul expresses great uh, discomfort over the fact that a number of his countrymen have have rejected Christ. But even though many have rejected him, the middle parts of this chapter talk about how God is still faithful because he has extended his promises to a remnant, to a few within the nation of Israel where he is preserving his covenant. And and not only that, but this covenant that he's preserving is consistent with his justice and with his fairness. And that's what we see in the first several verses of chapter 9. But what's interesting is after making that introduction, in chapter 9, verses 30 through 33, he begins to talk about why it is that many of the Jews have rejected Christ. See, the reality is he talks about earlier in in chapter 9 that if any of us are to be saved, then God must intervene. But really, the, the point is that if any of us are to get lost or separated from God, we don't need any help with that. We can go ahead and wander away from him. That's the, 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 the predisposition of our hearts is to wander away from God, and it places all humanity in a condition separated from God. And the Jewish people were no different from that. They'd wandered away from God and had rejected him. Well, what did that look like? Well, this rejection that is talked about is, is put in contrast with what was happening in the early church and its ethnic makeup in the time in which this is written. See, in, in the early days of the church, they thought of the church in Jewish terms. The church was birthed out of Judaism. Jesus himself was a Jew. The first disciples, they were, they were Jewish. They, they met in synagogues and in the temple court for worship in the early days. The church had Jewish origins, but something interesting had happened just a few years into the history of the church and that the ethnic makeup of the church began to shift. The majority of the Jewish people rejected Christ as their Savior, and what happened was a number of Gentile people were professing faith in Christ and were coming into a relationship with God. So that what happened for the first time in history, a majority of the people on the earth who were experiencing salvation were Gentile and not Jewish. That created quite a stir. 
And so the, the, the question that, that comes in here is, how do we make sense of this? This phenomena that is happening where there are more Gentiles than Jewish followers of Christ. There are more Gentile than Jewish recipients of salvation. He describes it this way in verse 30. He says, the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Now, this is a contrast between the Gentiles and the Jewish people. He says here that a a number of Gentiles, not all of the Gentiles, but a number of people from Gentile background, non-Jewish background, were coming into a position of receiving salvation. Now, this for us is not all that surprising because most followers of Christ that we know are from a non-Jewish background. But at this time, this was quite shocking because Gentiles were not people who were characterized by their holy lifestyles. As a matter of fact, if you were to poll people in the first century in the, the Middle East around Israel, they would, have, they would have said something like this. The holy people were the Jewish people, and the unholy people were the Gentile people. See, it was the Jewish people that had the list of rules, that had the laws, that had the regulations, that had the festivals, that had all of this effort and all of this, this stuff that they did as an outward expression of their religion and as an outward expression of their holiness. They had a whole bunch of stuff that they did and did not do. That was the Jewish people. They were the holy people. But the Gentiles, they were the ones that they called worship visiting a temple prostitute. They called that worship. These were the ones that were eating meat that was strangled and sacrificed to idols. These were people that were, that were pursuing every carnal pleasure known to man. Those people who were characterized by such an unholy lifestyle were coming in record numbers into a saving relationship with the God of the universe. And it had everybody looking around going, what is going on? The holy people are separated from God, but the unholy people are on the inside? This doesn't make sense. What has happened? And what had happened was that the Gentiles had not gone about a program of improving their lives. They had not gone about becoming Jewish people themselves and, and adhering to all the laws of the Old Testament. They, it, was, it was not about a, a self-improvement program that had happened for the Gentiles. It wasn't about their try. It was about their trust. The Gentile people recognized that they were sinners And they were trusting in the God of the universe to save them, not on the basis of their own works, but on the basis of Jesus Christ and his work. It was a righteousness that was by faith. It was by trust. It wasn't by their try. Gentiles had found themselves in a saving relationship with Christ based on his work and not theirs. But the Jewish people found themselves in a totally different spot. You see, they were the ones that were characterized as the holy people, but they were trying to connect to God based on their personal worth, based on their personal effort, based on their personal try. They thought, you know what, if if we could just impress God by keeping his commandments and maybe adding to them a few of our own, if we could just keep this standard good enough and certainly better than those Gentile dogs who live down the street. If we could just keep God's standard so much, then God will welcome us into his presence because we are the holy people. 
And yet what they found was that though the Gentiles were able to lay hold of the prize of salvation by faith, the Jewish people were not able to attain. There was a futility in their pursuit of the law. Though they tried in all of their effort and personal strength to keep it, they consistently and continually fell short and thus found themselves separated from God forever. He, he says in verse 32, he lets us know a little more about this. He says, why did this happen? He says, because the Jews, they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, by works. They wanted their salvation to be about them, about their performance, about their holiness, about their righteousness. And what happened was they were well short. Friends, we just sang about the holiness of God. God is so holy, he, he outdistances all of the best efforts of any single group of people or any individual on the planet. No effort that we have can impress a holy God. And here's the, here's the reason why. Do you know what the, the uh, sentence that God gives out concerning sin is? We sin, what's the, what's the verdict? What's the sentence? It's death. And that's for any one sin. The punishment is death because he's a holy God. And so because of that, that puts all of humanity, including these Jewish people, in a terrible predicament. Because let's not even talk about our future and our try-harders. Let's talk about our past. How many in this room have sinned? How many in Israel had sinned? The answer to that is 100%. You don't have to look around. I know the answer. I've got the answer key. I've lived it out personally. We're all sinful people. Therefore, the, the punishment of God comes to us, which is death. The reason why we cannot earn our way to heaven, the reason why salvation cannot be on the basis of our try is because we have already failed and we are already worthy of a punishment of death. The only way to eternal life is another way. It's a way not by try but by trust. It's by trusting that Jesus' death on the cross was a sufficient payment to satisfy God's wrath concerning my sin and yours. When we embrace that by faith, then we find that it's possible for us to connect to God, not on the basis of our try-harders, but on the basis of trusting Jesus in his work. This is what we see here. And the Gentiles, they were the ones that got it. It was the Jewish people on the whole who did not. He describes this by quoting the, the prophet Isaiah from the Old Testament the second half of verses 32 and on into verse 33, he quotes two different passages in Isaiah. He says, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. What does that mean? Well, I think it's helpful for us to go back to our opening illustration. In the race around the world, there are those who would see the 777 airplane which is there as the way to the finish line, they would see it as an obstacle on their path and would run around it in disgust. That's what happened with the Jewish people. They saw Jesus and his death offering their forgiveness, offering them the way. They saw it as an offense and an obstacle to run around. Why did they feel that way? Because the cross was the definitive act where it was demonstrated that they needed someone else in order to save them. See, I think that, that a number of people in the nation of, of Israel in the first century and a number of people today, they think that our problem is that we need Jesus to make our life a little better. 
when in reality we forget that we need Jesus to satisfy the debt that our sin has created. The wages of sin is death. We need a spiritual savior, not just someone who makes our life a little bit better. The Jewish people missed that because they thought that they were good enough. They wanted someone to just kick the Romans out and make their lives a little better, make their country a little safer, make their house a little bigger and their pockets a little fuller, their crops a little better. But they needed something far greater than that. They needed a spiritual savior to take away their sin. They missed that because they were looking to their own try and they weren't trusting what God had provided. Friends, the question for us today, and this is what we need to all wrestle with in this room, is how do we envision salvation? Do we look to salvation as our try? We are saved by trying harder, by doing better. Do we think of salvation about us, or do we look to salvation as something that God provides that we trust in? Do we think that our need is just to have our lives made a little better, and we're here today so that our kids' lives are a little better, so that our marriage is a little better, so that we meet somebody that we can marry so that our lives will be a little better, so that we make a a contact in business so our business is a little more successful? Are, Are we around the church? Are we around Christianity because we want our lives to be a little better, or do we realize that our ultimate need, our desperate need is for a personal Savior? a spiritual savior to take away the punishment of our sins so that we might be connected to the God of the universe forever. Friends, our greatest need and Israel's greatest need was a spiritual savior. Therefore, Jesus came not just to make our lives a little better, but he came to pay the penalty for our sin so that we might be reconciled to God forever. See, what the Israel, the Israel people in the first century, what they didn't realize was this. In order to be connected to the God of the universe, we need to realize that we are as sinful as a Gentile, not to pursue God because we're as holy as a Jew. Our hope, your hope, my hope for eternity is not found in our try. It's found in our trust that even though we as sinful as Gentiles separated from God because of our sin, we could be connected to him forever because of what Jesus has done. Let us not see the provision of Jesus as the way, as an obstacle, but let us see it as the means that God has given to satisfy his wrath concerning our sin and to usher us into his presence forever. First thing we see is that salvation is about trust and not try. Second thing that we see is that salvation is about Jesus and not religion. Salvation is about Jesus and not religion. We see this in the first four verses of chapter 10. Now, it's interesting, Paul begins chapter 10 very similarly to the way he began chapter 9, expressing his great love for his fellow countrymen, the Jews, in their rejection of Christ. In chapter 9, you'll remember he began that chapter by by lamenting the fact that so many of his countrymen had rejected Christ. As a matter of fact, that lament went so far as to have Paul say, Lord, if you would just curse me and save them, that would be wonderful. That's how much Paul hurt for his his fellow Jews in their rejection of Christ. But knowing Paul knew this, that he could not offer his life as a substitute for theirs because Paul had his own sin to deal with. He needed his own Savior. 
Paul instead turns to the one who can do something for them. He turns to the God of the universe and he asks God for the salvation of his friends. You see this in chapter 10 and verse 1. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. This is what we do as followers of Christ in light of the fact that there are those around us that we know that don't know him. We ask God to work on their behalf. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, I want you to know this. We spent some time yesterday as staff and elders praying for you. And if you're here today and somebody invited you to come, know that there is somebody on the other side of that invitation that's probably praying for you. Praying for you to come to know Christ. Why? Because we want to micromanage your life? Absolutely not. Because we actually believe what this says is true. That there's only one way to the finish line of salvation and that way is found through Christ and we desperately want you to know our Savior as we know him. And so we go to the God of the universe on your behalf and we pray. Friends, if you know Christ and you're not regularly praying for those that are around you that don't know Christ, this is a great encouragement for us to start. We get to cooperate with God and join him in this endeavor of trusting him for the lives of those that we know and love. Paul opens chapter 10 as he opened chapter 9, expressing his heart and his prayer for his fellow countrymen. But he goes on, and in verse 2, he begins to, to give a critique of Jewish religious expression. He says in, in verse 2, he says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Now, in Paul's critique of Judaism and their, their zealousness, he did so not as somebody who did not know what he was talking about. Paul did this absolutely as somebody who knew what he was talking about because Paul himself had practiced Jewish zealous expression of faith for years and years. It was what had dominated Paul's early life. Listen to how Paul describes his life in the book of Philippians in chapter 3, verses 4 to 7. Paul writes to them, he says, "'Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also.'" If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have far more. Paul says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I am of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. See, when Paul is going to give a critique of zealous Jewish religious expression, he does so as somebody who knows what he's talking about. This is the life that he had lived. This would be like if you were ever around someone who comes out of a background of drug addiction or alcohol addiction, and as they talk about their experience, they talk about the hollowness of that addiction and where it left them. You know, their, their testimony holds a lot of value to you, doesn't it? Because they know what they're talking about. It's not just theory. In the same way, when Paul is going to give a critique of Jewish religious zealous expression, he does so as somebody who knows what he's talking about because he studied under Gamaliel. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, a zealot himself. So Paul, who had experienced this in the early parts of his life and knew the hollowness of it, gives a critique of the religious expression of his people. He says that though it is, is zealous, it is not according to knowledge. In other words, they are really fired up about their religion, and they are sincere, and they believe it strongly, and they express it loudly, but 
all of that zealousness and all of that fervor and all of that effort has done nothing to get them closer to God. Why? Because all of their expression had become about them. They had gotten really fired up about their ability to keep the law and their ability to make new laws so that they could keep them. Their focus had turned inward. It had looked only to themselves, and because of that, they had no knowledge of the true God of the universe. Their whole system had become about religion, and it had forgotten about their Lord. He goes on, and he says in in verse 3, he says, "...for being ignorant of the righteousness of God in seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness." He talks about them being ignorant. Now, when, when you read that, you ought to be asking some questions. What does he mean, be ignorant? I mean, these were, this was a nation that, that had the Old Testament. They had the laws of God. They, were, they, were they ignorant of, of these things? Well, the, the answer to that, what it meant to be ignorant of the righteousness of God, really is, is, is twofold. It depends on who you're talking about. There were some Jews in the first century who were ignorant to the, the righteousness of God because they had edited and amended God's word. These were people like the Sadducees. See, they were sad, you see, uh, because they, that's an old joke, but it gets you every time. Hey, they, the, the, the Sadducees had rejected the resurrection. They had shortened the Old Testament. They only were embracing certain verses of it. And because they were only embracing certain verses of it, they found themselves not recognizing their Messiah when he came in Jesus. And so because of that, they, they were ignorant of God's righteousness and they missed their Savior. Still for others, it wasn't that they had amended God's laws in those ways. It was that they had become so focused on God's law that they failed to look at the Lord that the law pointed to. See, the Pharisees were people who made so many laws and rules, they just kept focusing on those things, even to the point that they began worshiping those laws and their ability to keep those laws, and their confidence was in those things. Their confidence was not in the Lord. And because of that, they missed the Savior that the law pointed to. See, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul tells us that the purpose of the law, it was like a teacher to lead us to Christ. It was an arrow pointing to Christ, but but the Pharisees missed it because they just were, were looking at the law. And we had uh, Kimberly's uh, folks were down this weekend, and they brought their dog with them. And it re- reminded me, we haven't had a dog in a while, but this reminded me uh, of something just today as I was even reading this passage. Uh, you know, if you have a dog, and many of you have, have dogs, what happens when you point? Where does the dog want to look? Right at the end of your finger, right? If you have a dog that looks where you're pointing, they're a smarter dog than I've ever owned. Um, but we had a situation and the dog was there and, and Josh is pointing and the dog just keeps looking at his finger like, oh, that's neat. It's like a hot dog. What is that? Um, they just kept looking at, at, the, at the finger. That's what the dog kept doing. And you know what? That's what the Pharisees did with the law. The law was pointing to Christ, but they just were looking at the finger. They were gathering around that. They were worshiping it. They, they, they became ignorant of the true righteousness of God because they thought they could attain it. They were just staring at the finger. They missed the one to whom the finger pointed. He goes on and he says in verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. See, what happened is Christ came and in a definitive way, he says to the universe, if you want to be connected to the God of the universe, it is found 
through me. No longer can people approach God based on their works. They, they never could get there successfully anyway, but Jesus comes in the new covenant and he says, that, that system is done in the new way. The new covenant is found in me. Believe in me and my death pays the penalty for your sins. All of those sins that the law reminded you of, that reminded that you could never get there, Jesus says, I gave my life to pay that price so that you might be connected to the God of the universe That's what God has done for us in Christ. Now, how does this connect to us today? When I, when I think about this today for us, I, I think about a, a, a reality uh, that many today, though we are not from a Jewish background, and, and this distinction of Jew and Gentile and Israel and all that stuff that we see in here, um, the same principles hold true. There are many among us who seek for religion to be what connects us to God and not Jesus, who who want to to gather a set of rules together and worship those rules as what gives us comfort rather than looking to the one whom those rules point. I was sharing this this idea with uh, an artist who is a member here at Wildwood, Joshua Martin, and uh, he drew this beautiful piece of art for us it really, I think, accurately summarizes what's going on in, in Romans 10 and accurately goes, summarizes what goes on in our own hearts. You see, God gave the law, he gave the Old Testament, he gave his commandments to remind us and to point us towards our need for a Savior. And yet, sadly, so many of the Pharisees and so many within the nation of Israel and even so many within the church today want to know their list of rights and wrongs, do's and don'ts, want to know their festivals they're supposed to celebrate and how they're supposed to celebrate it, want to take all of the, 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 the Christian life and break it down into lists that they can manage and they can do in their own power, want to say it must look like this, it must never look like that, that our, our hope and our connection to God is found in us and not in someone else. And when we do that, it is possible we can gather around the signpost of God's law and we can worship that, all the while missing the one to whom the law points. If you're here today and you have ever heard Christianity described merely as do's and don'ts, friends, you've been told something in error. Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is the God of the universe offering his life so that we might be with him forever. Every rule, every law, every pattern of of life reminds us of our inability and our own power to, to accomplish it and points us towards our Savior. What are you trusting in for your eternity? Are you trusting in your try? Are you trusting in your religion? Or are you trusting in Jesus Christ? For many in this room, I I know that we are trusting in Christ. And and I want to end our service today by giving us a chance to pray a prayer with music out loud, declaring our trust in Christ alone. And, and when we 
in just a moment, our, our band will lead us in this song. And I, I want us to, if, if that is, if we are, are believers in Christ, and this is something for a long time, I want us to stand and sing out a prayer of, of dependence upon Christ alone for our salvation, reminding us of the truth we embraced long ago. And for others who are here, if, if you have never placed your faith and trust in Christ, then as we sing this song, let this song be your words, your vocabulary, as you sing from your heart this prayer of declaring your dependence upon Christ alone for your salvation, not your trying and not your religion. And because it's not based on trying or religion, you don't have to go here and clean up your life before God will accept you. God accepts you only on the basis of what Christ has done, and his work was done long ago. So in this moment, if God is stirring within your heart, you can sing this out with us as an initial step of following Christ in faith.